Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Helen O'Neill, CEO and co-founder of Fertility Health. Fertility Health, like fertility but with an H, super clever, is making it easier for women to get insights into their fertile clock. Their fertility health tests, sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied on the fertility, fertility. Their fertility health test is a proactive hormone test that gives you insights into your egg count, ovulation, and how your general health might be impacting your reproductive biology. Today, I speak with Dr. Helen O'Neill, who is the founder, but she's also a scientist, y'all, and she is not only just the regular scientist, she's a geneticist. That, that's what I am. That's what I'm so excited about. We have a lot in common, uh, and her main focus and her research is on CRISPR, the genome editing tool. Super cool to talk about that. Um, she's also the program director of reproductive science and women's health at University College London and lecturer in reproductive and molecular genetics. Girl, get it. She's a respected geneticist who has been featured on BBC News and she's even spoken at the Royal Society. And although incredibly polished and accomplished, we had a blooper in the beginning of this episode. I feel like I'm even having a blooper in this intro. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep this, y'all. And um, we have a blooper in the beginning of this interview, and I'm going to keep it in there. And you know why? Because I want the listeners to know that we're just humans, like sitting in our living rooms, making this podcast. And if you want to make a difference in women's health and wellness, sometimes it's literally just getting a Zoom account and uh, talking to people. So we're humans, and we're making a difference. And you're a human, and you can make a difference. And enjoy this interview with uh, Dr. Helen O'Neill on fertility health. Hey, Dr. Helen, welcome to the show. Sorry. You're going to have to do that again. Sorry, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> okay, we're going to do it again. Hold on. Sorry. Hey, Dr. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to chat with you because I think we potentially are soul sisters. We are both in genetics and we both love femtech. So I'm just, uh, I want to be your friend already. I think we already are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, for our listeners, uh, we got on a little bit early and I was showing her my DNA tattoo and I was like, look, and my dog's name is Trips and like the enzyme, you know, we, we're soul sisters immediately already. <laughs> I think we're going to have a, have to curb our enthusiasm to try and fit in an amount of time. I think we'd be here all night. Yes. Well, and where are you located right now? I'm in London in the UK. London. Awesome. Oh man. I love having these international guests. We are downloaded in almost every continent. We need Africa and South America. So I love getting that international voice on here. Um, well, let's start off with your background. So tell us about where you're from, what did you study, and when did you start to fall in love with femtech? 
Uh, I am from Cork in the south of Ireland, and I studied my undergraduate degree there in molecular genetics. And then I moved to London about 13 years ago um, to do my master's. And I did that in UCL in prenatal genetics and fetal medicine. And then I stayed on to do research. So I went on and did my PhD at the National Institute for Medical Research. And I did that in stem cell and developmental genetics. And it was pretty much studying all of the mechanisms in which an ovary forms um, or the differences between the two sexes. So um, that's been my, my main drive. And then I went on to become a lecturer at University College London, which is what I currently do on top of my, uh, my role as CEO of Hertility Health. Oh my gosh. We are soul sisters. Seriously. I'm coming to visit. Like we're going to hang out because that Good. sounds so Since fun. Lockdown is over, you're over. <laughs> um, well, tell us about Hertility. So that's that, you know, you're the founder CEO of Hertility. What do y'all do? When did you start it? Oh, um, we always argue about how we started this. We say, mm-hmm. did we, did we start this when we actually just started our research all these years ago? I feel like we've been building this knowledge up for a long time, but we officially started about a year ago. Um, we, uh, basically were, um, I, I started this with uh, my co-founder, Natalie, Dr. Natalie. She is, um, an ovarian biologist and we, essentially met in the lab and were just so frustrated with, I guess, teaching and researching ways in which we could preserve fertility or talking about teaching about infertility. And yet both of us, despite being so connected to, you know, the IVF world, all of this education about infertility, we both said, I don't even know how to check mine. Like, where can we go to check our reproductive hormones? And, um, Ironically, at the time, I had a, a colleague who said, Helen, you better freeze your eggs. You know, time is ticking on. And I, I used to be quite busy myself in, in ruining people's Friday nights by saying, what age are you? Maybe you should think about settling down, uh, which is just the worst thing um, ever. But I, I feel like so much of both my personal and professional life um, was about this, you know, this ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. And it felt so unfair that the closer I got to my, you know, career goals, the, the, the closer I got to being where I wanted to be in my career, the further away I was getting from the stability of, you know, a family life. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like this very un, unfair choice. Um, mm-hmm. So we essentially said, why does this not exist? Why can't we just check in on our reproductive hormones? Um, and created it as a result. So um, it's been a, a year of, I think, building the, I think probably trying to build the perfect product because we're perfectionists by very nature. <laughs> Go scientists. Uh, thinking, <laughs> well, we, we, call, we call research um, a bit of a, an illness. We're like, it's this it's this illness that drives you. You definitely don't get paid for it. It, it keeps you up all night. You know, you, you keep doing it despite the fact that you have, you know, other things would make you money or do other things mm-hmm. that are better for you maybe. But it's, um, yeah, it's this desire to know more and to, and to make sure you know, we discover more. It's this, I guess, eternal search for discovery. And that has definitely been mirrored in our fertility journey um, because we essentially realized that we could have started with quite a basic 
product of just, you know, just checking in on your hormones. And when we started to do this, we started to look into what was out there in terms of ways to, you know, routes to care and treatment. And you'd be amazed. In fact, no, you'd be probably horrified um, to read some of the medical textbooks that say about some really, you know, hardcore conditions that uh, I quote, women are happy to be consoled about their condition. And we thought, mm, I'm not so sure anyone's happy to be consoled. I'm pretty sure people want to be to be heard and treated. Yeah. So, so what, what does consoled mean in that context? Like, just it may, it means it's essentially like I'll pass you some Kleenex and you you can have a cry and I'll pat oh, you on the shoulder and say everything's going to be okay. God. I am horrified. You're right, horrified. Yeah. So that kind of um, that kind of language is very much a closed door approach to women's health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that, and I the worst thing is I think a lot of women feel that too, and maybe it's through lack of previous choices that they say. Um, you know, it's it's a personal problem if they have it and there's not much you can do. And so we we set about really trying to demystify some of the most actually common female, you know, gynae pathologies. And that, as you can imagine, is uh, a, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But we are really committed to um, essentially having a route to care for every woman. Um, so we have kind of been working both on the product but also on uh, clinical trials so we have been uh, granted approval for two clinical trials um, which enable us to essentially predict certain pathologies uh, like endometriosis like polycystic ovarian syndrome and the amazing thing about these conditions is that you know, endometriosis affects one in 10 women Mm -hmm. and yet there is no treatment for it. Mm -hmm. And the average time it takes to be diagnosed with endometriosis is seven years. (sighs) So by the time you start getting these horrible, painful, life-limiting symptoms, it takes seven years for you to be diagnosed. And to me, that's just criminal. You know, you, you, and, and what it stems from is our inability to equate normal female physiology with normal and abnormal. Mm-hmm. So much of the pains that you would get during a period are, are, are could be on a different scale for different women. And yeah. so if you have really heavy periods, you're bleeding, you know, a lot of physicians will say, yeah, you're, um, you're a woman. And that is what happens every month. Good luck with that. Yeah. So women tend to go away thinking, you know, there's nothing can be done for me. And we really want to drill into more of the anatomy, more Mm -hmm. of the symptoms, be um, a listening ear um, that I think is not available to a lot of women. Yeah. And so in your clinical trials, like, are you trying to predict these diseases like in childhood or like when they've had no. symptoms or when? So through sim- basically through, through a very detailed symptom checker. Mm. So we have um, essentially a lot of the symptoms related to these pathologies can be confused with, as I said, you know, 
painful periods or mm-hmm. ir- mm-hmm. in fact many people with endometriosis confuse it for irritable bowel syndrome because you yeah. know your uterus is touching your bowel and it's it's just a it's a bit of an elusive uh, condition mm-hmm. and yet it shouldn't be it affects one in 10 women <laughs> so um we really are trying to shed light on that by really um honing in on the symptoms the uh, biometric data, the eventually genetic data of these women to say, okay, I think we can listen a little bit harder. And I think we can um, be a little bit more accurate with our definitions around some of these symptoms. And so what's your goal when you finish those clinical trials? Like what is the the end goal for you and your company? We want to be the Google of women's health. Mm. We want to, I, I, I feel that in a society that is so connected with everything, we count our calories, we count our steps. We do not count the one thing that every woman asks herself, you know, can I have children? Mm-hmm. Will I have children? Um, one thing that every woman is reminded of, yeah, yes, women definitely track their cycles, but the focus is always on not getting pregnant. Yeah. And so women are spending their 20s avoiding pregnancy and their 30s and 40s desperate to be pregnant. Mm. And so this is complete disconnect with our innate female physiology. So even in the way we prescribe contraceptives and, you know, birth control, it's the ethos around it is really wrong it says okay we're we're just going to disconnect from this very integral sign of your well-being mm-hmm. as a woman mm-hmm. and we're going to we're going to mask those symptoms for as long as possible a lot of women don't necessarily go on birth control or, or contraception not to get pregnant necessarily they yeah. do it for other reasons That's you right. know bad skin or you know um PMS or painful mm-hmm. periods. Mm-hmm. And really what those symptoms are telling you is that there could be something up yep. and we don't listen. That's right. Yeah. I started taking birth control at 13 because I had a cyst on my ovary and I had to have surgery and it was this big ordeal. Like it was, you know, legit surgery and I was cut open and, you know, uh, so I got put on birth control at 13. Now I, I personally, and you may, you know, tell me differently, but I, I feel like my birth control truly is helpful in me not getting cysts, you know, but I know that there are so many women that just have some pains or, you know, that it, it is a signal of something else that the pill letting you not have your period is just a masking of it. And not necessarily like me, it was a direct correlation when the egg comes out of your ovary, you apparently have a predisposition to having a cyst form after, right? And so like there's a direct correlation with the pill there, but there's so many times that pills just prescribe because it's like, well, you just won't, we'll just numb it. We'll just not be like, here, we just yeah. turn it off, you know? Well, I think the difference is you were able to find out that there was an actual, a root cause. Yeah. You had surgery, you actually addressed the mm. issue at hand. For mm. most women, they don't have the, I guess, maybe the privilege or they don't have the, um, ability or they haven't been listened to in order to say actually what is the root cause of this yeah yeah mine was this big fat cyst that they were able to see on an ultrasound but as you're talking about we don't know what a normal uterus looks like compared to a sick one and like if we can't you know cross-reference the stuff 
how, you know, yeah. for me, it was this really obvious, you know, red button that was like, oh, there's the problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Interesting. So I think a lot of it, actually, we do need to go back to basics. And that's what we're, that's what we're really aiming to do. A lot of it is, you know, you know perspective data gathering, but mm-hmm. so much of it is just understanding that not every woman has a 28 day cycle. Not mm-hmm. every woman ovulates on day 14. Not every woman has, you know, this, this perfect uh, menstrual cycle that is according to a textbook that was yeah. written in 1920. Yeah. Um, and actually that our lifestyles are very different nowadays. Yes. Um, so much so that it feeds further into this ignoring and suppression of female physiology. Yeah. You know, um, I, I always joke that the, the most devastating thing to female fertility or fertility in general is hope you know mm. we we hope we're going to meet the perfect person yeah uh, we hope that uh we're going to ha- be able to have our 2.5 kids and yeah. that's just not the no- the norm anymore unfortunately yes. yes the average age for a first child has gone from being in your early 20s to in your early 30s yeah an average for first age and yet in the there's um, a historical section of the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and it has a poster of, of, of what some of the older ads, and it says what to do with the geriatric mother. And the geriatric mother is 28 years old. <gasps> oh, my yep. gosh. Yeah. Because if you think about it, before women yeah. got, married, got married and had children in their early you know, late teens, early twenties. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if by 28, you were not married yeah. and did not have children. Geriatric mother. Oh you my were, God. You were pretty much propaganda. Oh my and God. now if you hear of somebody having, having a kid at 28, you say, I'm a bit young. Yeah. Well, I would. Yep. Yeah. I'm turning 29 in a few weeks. And uh, by the time this airs, I'll be 29. Geri- geriatric mother here, you know? No children, no, no children yet, but you know, obviously I'm going to qualify if I do. Um, this is so interesting. You know, you were talking about, um, understanding women's biology and we've had, uh, Dr. Sophia Yen from Pandia health on here. And she was talking about birth control for different ethnicities and simply because she prescribes so much birth control through her, you know, startup, she's herself has noticed what's more effective First, you know, the Asian population and, you know, this popular European, whatever. And so um, is that part of your studies too? like different ethnicities in women's health? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We know that certain ethnicities are more prone to black women are more prone to prolapse. Um, There are a a number of there are there are just differences in our bodies and we need to celebrate the difference and explore them as well. I mean, a lot of a lot of medication in general has ignored most medication, in fact, has ignored women completely. Mm-hmm. As as you know, as a researcher, even when we work with mice, um, we use male mice to yep. avoid the estrus cycle. Yep. Um, the female female form is complicated. Mm-hmm. It has alter. It has you know this cyclical hormonal change throughout every month. And so, in order to standardize the curve, let's just go with males. Yep. As a result, we do not develop drugs that are you know, even suited to, to women. Yeah. So yes, we are definitely, you know, addressing that there, that all women are different, that your um, genetic and heritable background is also going to be different. So we are 
building the largest mm-hmm. data set of female gynecological pathologies. Gosh, I love it. Which is the biggest mouthful ever ever to say that it's exactly <laughs> gynecological pathology. Um, you know, I love that you brought up the mice part because we have talked about on this podcast before that wasn't till the 1990s that there was a rule that clinical trials you know, for the FDA had to include women in the 1990s is the first time it was required. You have to test a medicine on a woman. But if we look at it, the drugs don't start in humans. You start the drugs in, you know, cell culture, and then it goes into animals and da, 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 da. But if all the animals are also only male animals, like we are not, we're still missing the mark on how does this affect women and estrogen and all those things. Um, you said that your studies are based on symptoms, biomarkers, and genetics. Biomarkers, is that what you said? Biometrics? Uh, biometrics and biomarkers. So I oh. guess the biometrics biometrics take into account your cycle history, your sexual history, oh. all of the things that we that are very important to your reproductive health, yeah. but would not necessarily get asked in yes. a nine minute appointment with your general practitioner. How does sexual history affect your reproductive health? Besides like, so, I've had sex and still didn't get pregnant. <laughs> like besides um, that, is there... No, it's it's not about how much sex you've had. It's about, well, it maybe it is because the correlation is if you've ever had an STI. So apparently one in four women have had some form of sexually transmitted infection at some point. Yeah. And possibly sexually active women. And they there are certain STIs or sexually transmitted infections or diseases that um, will, will reduce your fertility. So chlamydia mm. and gonorrhea. They actually have a cumulative effect whereby they reduce your fertility by 7 to 14%. And so that's why that is very important. Because if I just check your reproductive hormones, everything could look fine. But internally, as a manifestation of a previous infection, you might have like a mechanical form of infertility whereby your tubes have become blocked. Mm -hmm. So that is why taking somebody's sexual history is very important, along with their their biometrics and and their hormones. Oh my God, this is so fascinating. I'm learning so much. Um, <laughs> let's talk about genetics because I'm just like, let's just dive in. So let's you, go, back. Go, go to our roots. <laughs> so are there genetic reasons for infertility? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the, some of the sad parts about genetic reasons for infertility first of all let me say one in seven people are infertile um Mm. which is quite a shocking statistic to make when you're in a room full of people because everyone starts looking around saying is it you is it me uh and it is in now nowadays with the number of uh ivf babies um which in some countries in the uk or sorry some countries in in europe is one in six babies are IVF babies. And the predominant cause of the need for IVF or infertility is age-related, actually. Mm -hmm. And some some infertility statistics are that um, it used to be the majority of infertility was blamed on women because you carry it and um, it's very easy and say, well, she she's not getting pregnant. And then the, the statistics started to change a little bit. And then it was kind of, you know, 60, 40. Now we attribute 50% of infertility to male factor infertility. So 
it's just isn't it's just that crazy that how we blame women first that was the same for uh, genetic diseases and babies forever I learned in undergrad it's always the woman's fault it's her eggs that are the problem when you have a genetic disease and a baby and then I got into grad school and they were like so there's like some new paper out that actually says if it's chromosomal issues it's the woman but if it's point mutations it's all the man and the man's age actually yeah. matters you know like and there's yeah. still most of the people yeah. I think out and there the, think the number of mutations double every 16 years in, yep. in males. Yes. So yes. You, the men, they look at Hugh Hefner and say, oh, they can do it as yep. well. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they look at Mick Jagger and say he was able to get anyone uh, pregnant. Yeah. But the reality is actually that you have a high prevalence, of That's higher, right. much higher mutation load. Yes. Uh, in their lab. Um, at an older age, in fact, over 35. Yep, yep. So men don't think, and ladies don't think, that men yeah. are totally immune to age affecting the, your, uh, you know, your fruits of your loin, all right? It does affect both <laughs> women and men, and I it's not just women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I'm like, yes, I'm so, like, when I heard that, I was like, what? We, why do we shame women and also let's put up a billboard because who's going to hear about this you know yes yeah. exactly I know uh, it does take two to tango for sure mm -hmm. um, but no a lot of yes it can be genetic and certainly types of premature ovarian insufficiency um, are genetic in fact they say you know there's a lot of ways to test your fertility um, but they, there's a lot of literature out there that says if you uh, look at the age of that your mom had menopause, yours will be quite similar. Yeah. So that really tells you the, the genetics involved with it. Mm -hmm. And yet we cannot ignore, and this is an excuse that a lot of women give me, they say, oh, my mom had me at 40. And I say, was your mom drinking every weekend? I don't think so. Um, but I know it's quite blunt and harsh, but our lifestyles are very different to the generation that came before us. Yep. And unfortunately that does have to be taken into account. It's not just about, you know, lifestyle and drinking, but about the stress that we encounter, yes. the workload that we have, you know, it's 8 PM on a Friday night and I'm recording this with you and I've been up since 6 AM working. Yep. We have a high cortisol load all of the time, which impinges on our, our DNA in extraneous ways right. to hereditary that's forms right. of yeah and i mean you're in the U damage. you're in the europe uh and you know here in the u.s my added stress is that i have almost a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt that's still sitting here you know waiting and collecting interest and health care like i still have to buy and pay my own health care and even with health care i have medical bills i had allergic reaction to antibiotics in october and i'm still paying those bills that i went to the er because i was having allergic reaction so it's yeah. like yeah, my well, we're very, very grateful. I'm very grateful to have the NHS. Here. We have a healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but my mom, she has a high school diploma and she has a really well paying job, really great paying job. She wasn't expected to go to college, right? And so, yeah, speaking of the different types of stress and in just one generation, interesting. That's exactly it. Now you have to be the boss, the breadwinner, the bread maker, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my and God. We, you know, we, we strive to do this. We absolutely strive <laughs> to do this and we want to do that yeah. actually because of these bills, we have to do it. We have to be working. Yes. We have to be, but it's, it is as much as we can fight mother nature will win. Yep. Oh yeah. We can stand up for feminism all we want, but mother nature is not a feminist. 
she does not care she has that ticking time bomb on your ovaries and yes. you know that's an unfortunate thing that evolution has not caught up with the modern woman yeah you know it's interesting um you know when i was interviewing for grad school i i was at one interview and the professor said he started our interview by saying have you considered freezing your eggs and i thought it was like a trick question cuz i was like interviewing for a genetics thing and i was like Yes, that is a very interesting technology. You know, I thought, and he was like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like, if you're going to pursue a PhD, you're going to need to freeze your eggs. And I was, you know, and honestly, I was like, what the hell? Like, why are you talking about my eggs right now? Like, we're supposed to be talking about my, like, academic record. And, you know, as as I start, I lecture my medical students and I say, you know, how many of you have thought about freezing your eggs? Because this is, you know, not a career that is friendly on family yeah. or, you know, you get to the stage where you want to, you want to apply for promotion and it is the, right about the time where you should be biologically speaking, probably having children. Yeah. And so, so many women close their eyes to that. You know, it's this, it's the head in the sand phenomenon. You yeah. say, I'll be fine. I'll meet somebody or I'll do something, which is very, um, yeah, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing where I say hope is a uh, very damaging to fertility and freezing eggs. I have this paradigm in my head because I, I worked with E. coli bacteria in my grad program and we froze bacteria and they lived for 20 years in that freezer and you could take it out, strike it on a plate and it would grow by the next day. Right. I don't know why I have this thing in my head where I'm like, but human cells are really sensitive. Like I can't imagine putting a human egg in a freezer and then just thawing it out and it being totally intact and good to go. Is that true? Like it it is fine. The super important thing to remember about egg freezing is the quality, which with the egg was frozen. So a lot Mm. of people look at statistics when it comes to egg freezing and what the statistics they're looking at are the, um, how many, babies are born due to frozen eggs. Um, Unfortunately, that statistic is very skewed because the unfortunate average age that a woman decides to freeze her eggs is most predominantly late 30s. So just the time goes on and they go, actually, you know what? Things are definitely not going to go that way for me right now. So I'm going to freeze my eggs. And so unfortunately, the most common age that women freeze is too late. And so the qualifying statistic there is not fair on the technology that is our ability to freeze eggs. Yep, yep, so lucite yep. cryopreservation has definitely improved in that we are now using a, um, a technique called vitrification, which is essentially freezing at 196 degrees. Whoa, um, way colder than yeah, my so, deg- my freezer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it definitely is um, a much improved technology, but um, we have yet to see the true effects of it because a massive percentage of women who freeze their eggs go on to have children naturally, or mm. they just haven't used them yet. Okay. If you think about it, it's a relatively recent yeah. um, ability for us to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, there's a massive percentage of women who've frozen their eggs who haven't gotten around to thawing and fertilizing and implanting. Yeah. So it sounds like from a scientific standpoint, the committee's out, we don't have enough data yet, but as someone who works in this field, are you, you know, fairly confident that freezing your eggs still permits very viable and, you know, good option for women? So long as you are 
so long as you're freezing you something know. before it's gone off. That's right. If you freeze something that's gone off, it's going to come out of the freezer gone off. That's right. And that's, that's a very right. crude way of saying it. But, yeah. you know, so long as we have good quality, if you freeze good quality embryos, yes, they will mm. thaw as good quality embryos. And if you freeze, you know, late o- older embryos, unfortunately, they will be less robust to survive the thaw process. Got it. And how does one freeze their eggs? It's Is it... Um... I'll admit there was at one time I was getting advertisements. I still do. I get advertisements that's like, donate your eggs, make money, pay off your student loans. They totally know my credit score. Um, (laughs) And uh, when I looked into it, I, you know, curious, how do I donate my eggs? They said, you know, you got to give yourself all these hormone shots for a month and then, you know, got to be sedated. And then we go in and we get all the eggs. Is it similar for freezing your eggs or how do they get them? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's oh. the exact same process as freezing your eggs as it is for donating them. Mm-hmm. You're just freezing them for somebody else. Yep. So, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. inject your belly. Yeah. You, you're essentially trying to put your routine ovulation on um, caffeine, we'll say. Okay. <laughs> you're, 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 you're <laughs> happening. Instead of, instead of one egg maturing yeah. and, and going going down and waiting for that that sperm in your uterus you're you're mm-hmm. trying to mature multiple eggs at That's once right. um right. from both of the both of your ovaries and then they go in with a needle um and they, they puncture the wall and they they aspirate the need the eggs and freeze them so yeah if, if you're freezing them they keep them in the freezer for you wow. if you're donating them they keep them in the freezer for somebody else well, we've totally gone down an egg freezing rabbit hole, but I had questions. So thank you for answering them. <laughs> uh, the next thing I wanted to chat about, I saw it on your bio on your on your website. And I was like, Oh, my God, she's the coolest. I want to be your friend. I saw that you study how CRISPR, which is a genome editing tool, um, can be used to understand and treat for t- infertility disorders. So can't I, you're a professor, so I know you're very good at describing it. Um, tell us, our listeners, what CRISPR is generally, and then how does that have anything to do with fertility or how are you using it? Okay, so CRISPR is uh, a genome editing tool. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Um, I'll be asking you that at the end, by the way. Um, <laughs> There's a quiz. And it is essentially... <laughs> You study bacteria, so you're you're very familiar yeah. with um, how clever they are. Oh yeah, and it's essentially an adaptation of a, an an immune system, a bacterial immune system. So to to easily describe it, where you recognize your immune system as as producing antibodies against um, a particular pathogen, a bacteria also has an immune system, except its immune system works to cut invading sequences of DNA and insert those DNA sequences into its own genome to render itself immune to any further infections from a virus with a similar type of DNA. So the ability to cut, to A, locate, B, cut, and C, insert a piece of DNA is super exciting for a research scientist because we can essentially harness that tool and edit to very precise uh, locations throughout the genome. Um, This has been used in clinical trials to correct um, sickle cell, beta thalassemia. It has been used as a molecular biology tool in almost every lab there is Mm -hmm. uh, with every model organism. And it works incredibly well. So my research looks at embryo formation 
so that we can discover ways in which an embryo is growing and therefore elucidate how it is that an embryo may or may not implant. So what would what would cause it to fail to grow? And there are a number of obviously genetic reasons for that. There are physiological reasons for that. And we are essentially using CRISPR genome editing in embryos to try and correct specific mutations. So that is um that is that's everyone talks about this as being the future and it's not. It's very much the here and now. Mm-hmm. And it is going to if if I was to talk about any tool and compare it to anything that we take for granted nowadays, I would say that CRISPR is like the internet um, mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of research. It is going to change everything. Yeah. Everything from modern medicine to research to prescriptions to therapy mm-hmm. it is um it's definitely the the future yeah the way i describe it that was amazing you know i i you know when my mom asks what's crispr she has never taken a science class in her life probably you know i say it's like you go into a word document and you see a sentence that's wrong and so you copy the right sentence from another word document and you go over to the first one document you highlight the wrong sentence you delete and then you control V in the new sentence. That's what yeah. CRISPR does, but in DNA, you know? And so um, what I'm hearing you say is like, you're helping, you know, discovering like, oh, wow, this genetic abnormality, the wrong sentence, if you will, is, can you know, causing infertility because the egg isn't, you know, implanting or, or I shouldn't say egg, I guess embryo at that point, right? Um, and so how yes. can you go in there and copy and paste the right instructions in? That is amazing. And so actually, let me clarify that. Is it the egg that is frozen you're doing CRISPR on? Is it the blastocyte in the uterus that's already fertilized? Or what are you CRISPRing? so to step to step back, my research and my research and my company are very very different. Okay, so the the research is the academic in me. Got it. Got it. Is the entrepreneur in me. So just in case anyone um, anyone comes at me with a lawsuit saying oh, that yeah. I'm doing CRISPR on embryos, I am not the last person <laughs> to do CRISPR went to jail. Um, yes, yes. I uh, this Good is just clarification. Yes, how an embryo develops, and I. I for the most part, work in in mouse embryos to make sure that we have safe delivery of these components, um, so that one day um, we will be able to correct genetic mutation in certain embryos for families who know that they are carrying a devastating disorders. That they would be able to have an embryo that is free from that mutation. Mm-hmm. Oh man, got it. So cool. Yes, and good. Good on you for the clarification. I just kind of going <laughs> off in the genetics world. It's funny. The- currently. Currently not legal. No, no, not legal. We're not editing babies, y'all. This is, it's separate from fertility. Um, Do you think more scientists should become entrepreneurs? You know, I, I think, unfortunately, in the science world, people think that there's this very binary way. It's either, either academia or it's uh, industry. And for those in academia, they look at those who've gone into industry and say, oh, you've sold out, you've yeah. sold out to the big man. And, you know, those who work in industry say, yeah, well, at least I get paid. Yep. Um, and so there's this unfortunate divide between the two. And yes, I definitely think more scientists should become entrepreneurs, should, you know, use what the tools that they have, because 
I mean, God knows you need tenacity and, and dedication. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the same traits that you need to complete your doctorate and a PhD, which is, you know, no sleep, no pay, no, you know, <laughs> no encouragement, really. Um, constantly seeking approval. The exact same thing as you, you face when you are doing your own company. No sleep, no pay, constantly seeking approval from investors. So they're very similar, actually, in, yes. in what it is that, that you need. And you need a, a, a good, strong brain. Yeah. So yes, I think I, I think it's a shame that um so many go down this one way street. I am in total agreement with you. I think a lot more scientists should become entrepreneurs because we are problem solvers. Sure, I know a lot about genetics because that's specifically what I study. But what I really have a doctorate in is problem solving. Problem solving. Uh, problem exactly. solving using pilot tests, right? So like if you're an entrepreneur. A pilot test is throwing $10 into an advertisement, testing it out, seeing if it works. And then if it does, you're like, good, I'm going to put $1,000 into it. It's the same thing in the laboratory. You don't use all your reagents for the first try. That's exactly it. And it couldn't have been more more the case for fertility um, and what we're trying to achieve. It has been an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um and one that we have realized that needs a lot more research. One thing that we had trusted when we started was that there would be sufficient research done already on uh, this. Yeah. And what we were horrified to find out is that actually the research out there is predominantly done on infertile women. So that we have large data sets on women who have struggled with, you know, their fertility mm-hmm. and very little information on women who normal, healthy, not normal, just healthy, yes. um, healthy, healthy cohort. And so what, this is why I say we're building this large data set of just, you know, women who have normal periods, irregular periods, heavy periods, painful periods. We want to know everything about your periods, your sexual history, your, your biometrics. We want to measure your hormones for you, tell you what is happening. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're, I guess, looking into is, um, you know, looking at joining up all of your hormone health um, as a whole. Like we know that some hormones interact with each other and they're Mm -hmm. taken as a ratio. For Mm -hmm. example, FSH and LH is given as a ratio. And this is this the interplay between these two hormones is important. But what are the other interplays between other hormones that we that we miss out on? And so this is why we for every woman we tailor their test based on their based on their history. This is not a one shoe fits all approach. Uh, quite the opposite. In fact, every woman um, goes in, they ask, answer our care questionnaire and we specifically design what hormones we will test them uh, based on what they have told us. For example, if somebody is over-exercising and it has a BMI indicative of hypothalamic amenorrhea, well, we're going to have to include their thyroid function in that. Um, so this is this is why I say we've gone we've gone PhD level <laughs> on our interrogation of what a woman needs to have tested yes. to get a proper insight into her reproductive health, not just her fertility, but her reproductive health in general. Oh my gosh, you are doing amazing stuff. It's so good. Um, we are running out of time. I literally could talk to you forever. Um, but let me ask you the two questions our listeners love. The first is, um, you know, we have a lot of aspiring founders that are, are listening around the world and they are wondering, you know, what in fem- what in women's health still needs innovating? What's the thing that I should be working on? So what do you think is a, is a, is a category in women's health and wellness that still needs, uh, you know, work still needs innovating. 
I think, um, I think God, there's there's so much that still needs. I feel like we're only we're only just starting to mm-hmm. to relook at women's health. Um, I think there's a a lot of work to be done in in the menopause space. I know that there are a lot of people coming up in in that space. Um, it's a very unfortunate thing that we care about conditions related to age related conditions and if they affect everybody. And yet this is a it's an inevitability that you know, your ovarian reserve reduces and you get to a certain point where you're perimenopausal and then menopausal. And yet so many people are completely ignorant to this, women included. They say, well, I'm young now, so I don't care about this. And it becomes this panic thing. So I think I think that's definitely a space that is, and I can introduce you to somebody who's definitely actively working in this space. Mm. Um, maybe she can be your next podcast. But um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of area in women's health in general, but uh, what we are doing in terms of reproductive health in general and hormone health um, is is definitely where it's at. Yeah, uh, we are seeing a lo- uh, several menopause companies coming up that are kind of like community support or telehealth. Um, a few right. like uh, FDA regulated lotions or, or things like that. But um, we have an intern, Mariana, who is working on a direct to consumer device for women to help them with hot flashes. It's like a bracelet that kind of cools them off. And she was she's in an accelerator this summer. And they told her to, go, you know, do market research, go to the store and count how many over the counter menopause products there are. And so she texted me all these pictures of oh my God, there is none. There is no over-the-counter menopause like treatment. Like, okay, I'm glad things are showing up, but like, there's still no shelf. There is no shelf, but like, that is not a a label on the the aisle. The irony of that is that (laughs) you are, you are left on the shelf. If you are in the menopause, if you are a menopausal woman, you are considered on the shelf. You know, nobody, nobody really cares. Yep. You're not a reproductive age, and that is a, an absolute tragedy. Yes. And I, I guess it comes. There's, you know, there's a lot of interesting stories around menopause and all this about how evolutionary, literally speaking, women never lived that long. You yep. know, you lived yep. productive years and, and you died. And and so yeah, we definitely need to combat that. We need to address that and listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now to be successful? It needs men to listen. This is not a this is not a a tick box exercise. Um, you know, this is not we we've had many investors approach us and say, oh, we're really looking into the femtech space. And I say, really? Have we have you ticked your uh, inclusion box? I don't want to be a tick box exercise. I want you to care about this. Yeah. And you know, if men are fifty percent of the problem with infertility, they need to care too. These are their partners that aren't getting pregnant mm-hmm. due to multiple reasons but women need to listen they need to check in with their reproductive health at a much younger age than the stage where they're actively trying it's much better to be in the know and to prepare your life you know we prepare everything Uh we we plan our years ahead our education our journeys our holidays why wouldn't you prepare for the biggest thing that's going to happen to you and that's whether or not you have a child wow incredible thank you so much for your time today this has been really really enjoyable Um, I, I learned a lot and I may start Googling how to freeze my eggs. I'll let all the listeners know. know. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you a fertility test and we'll check your reproductive health for you. Okay, perfect. And then we'll let you you know whether you should or not. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
My pleasure. All righty. Good night. Thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Helen O'Neill, CEO and co-founder of Fertility. You can join the waiting list to be the first to get your hormone test that tells you about your reproductive health at fertilityhealth.com. I had such a blast talking to Helen about genetics, the science of fertility. She seriously got me thinking about freezing my eggs, y'all. Have any of you frozen your eggs? Have you decided definitely not to? Um, I'd love for us to have a conversation about this. Honestly, hit us up on social and let us know your thoughts. This could be a really cool community board, you know, discussion. Um, a few upcoming events I want to make sure you know about. The first is the Women's Health Innovation Summit virtual conference happening in September. We got your promo code FOCUS10, no space, FOCUS10 for a discount off your registration. You can get your ticket at womenshealthinnovationusa.com. And also uh, Untitled Kingdom is presenting live interviews on the state of Femtech every Thursday throughout August and September. And tomorrow is their first one. And it's on August 6th. Kicking it off with Jill Angelo and Anne Garnier, our two menopause ladies who we have interviewed on here. Uh, and they're speaking about menopause. That's tomorrow. Sign up. Do that. Untitled Kingdom. Now, y'all, if you love this podcast, please support it. Share it with your network. Subscribe, rate, and review it. And follow us on social at Femtech Focus. And until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.